So advice that I have is read about behavioral investing. It's fascinating, you know, but human beings are, we're, we're more emotional than we are rational. And Absolutely. that part of a uh, part of the human experience uh, dominates every single time. And so if you're watching news and you're watching CNBC thinking that you're really being tuned in, you know, those news cycles are designed to make you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, both on the buy and the sell side. So I turn off the news. Don't listen to any of it. Remember your time horizon. Remember what Apple did in the worst tech bear market in history. You know, remember that. Those are important things that, that we try to remember as well whenever we're, we're going through volatility. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off. Grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon or in this case, bulls and bears. We are skipping the bourbon today and talking about growth investing. I have two guests today from the IO Fund. IO Fund runs one of the highest performing tech-focused portfolios in the world. They also provide institutional research, which I utilize in managing portfolios for my clients. I love their approach to identifying micro trends and the company's best position to benefit from those trends. Knox, Ridley, and Bradley Cipriano share their views on growth investing, the current macro environment, investing time horizons, crypto assets, risk, and so much more. Knox began consulting on portfolios back in 2007. He's an experienced growth investor in both bull and bear markets. He's keen on macro trends, and he's trained on Fibonacci trading, Elliott Wave Theory, and GAN cycles. He also uses classical technical analysis to manage risk and identify great risk-to-reward setups. Bradley previously worked as a forensic equity analyst at Gradient Analytics, where he focused on assessing the quality of revenue and earnings for both domestic and internationally listed stocks for institutional asset managers. He's been able to utilize his strong accounting background to identify issues and concerns that the street may be overlooking, such as low-quality earning beats and unsustainable revenue growth. Together with the rest of the IO Fund team, they provide incredible insights into the world of growth investing. Enjoy our conversation. Hello, Knox and Bradley. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. Great to be here. Good to be here. Good. I'm excited. We're talking about a, a topic today that is near and dear to my heart, and uh, we'll be talking a lot about growth investing. I really don't like applying labels to my own investment style. You guys may not either, but I would say if you kind of look at the names I like, the investments that a lot of my clients are in, I, I think most people would would probably say I'm I'm a growth investor, at least lean heavily in that direction. So it's something I'm excited uh, to kind of chat with you guys about. Um, I like your research. I read your blog um, regularly. Um, and I think there's a lot of um, similar ideas and thoughts that you guys have about the future and about um, how the world might change and how, how stocks and, and investments will be impacted as a result. So 
I would like to just kind of jump right into it and and talk about growth investing and the challenges that come. And as you guys know, everyone says they can handle volatility. Everyone, when they're filling out a questionnaire that says, what would you do if the market dropped 35% in three months? Almost everyone says nothing. I would hold my investments. But as, as you all know, and as I know, that's that's not reality when it happens. And growth investing certainly takes a little bit more um, of, of maybe a disciplined approach or, or a stomach for risk, however you want to say it. But what do you guys think are a couple of the, of the key principles that are really important for someone who's wanting to invest in growth opportunities? That's a really important question. <clears throat> and uh, you know, it reminded me when you were saying that, I was thinking of that Mike Tyson quote where he said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And that's uh-huh. very much how uh, I would say growth investing is. Like everybody has a time horizon and a risk tolerance until all of a sudden their portfolio is down 30%. You know, and so I think the most important aspect is you have to have a plan, you know, and it can't be a loose plan. I think it has to be a really strict plan. Um, you got to approach, we or we approach growth investing from a risk management standpoint. And if you're, you know, we're invested all in tech, all in tech and cryptocurrencies, you know, so the realized volatility of our portfolio is quite high. And, um, you know, we don't use diversification as a way to manage risks. So we have to get creative. We do that through position sizing. We do that through when we enter a stock we know when the cutoff is going to be like, we have no problem selling a position and moving that money somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And we try not to add to our losers. Like a lot of people want to, we add to our winners. We let our our winners tell us where to be putting our money for the year. Um, So those are just some general overviews of of kind of how we approach it. The other thing is I think with growth and with growth investing and, you know, Bradley can chime in on this a little bit. Um, is you, you really can't approach it from like a classic financial analysis standpoint. Um, I think that if you look at valuations first, as we're taught to, then you really will miss out on some phenomenal ideas. You know, you'll, um, you know, look at Dropbox and say, this is my cloud position, you know, and you just missed out on a really epic trend because the valuation is really low. A lot of the times with tech specifically, uh, companies have a high premium for a reason. And so understanding why that is, I, I think is very crucial. It's an interesting point. And, and I, th- I think those are some things that I talked to Brian Feraldi about on this show. And they were really good points. People, people really want to add the losers. It's a really um, easy kind of mental trap to fall into. Now, if you really like the company and it was maybe part of a, of a broader pullback or something, that's one thing. But, but I mm-hmm. think that is a, a definitely a mental um, roadblock, a barrier that a lot of people have to deal with. But but Bradley, go ahead, uh, th- throw out a couple more there. Yeah, I was just going to add really understanding the quality of a company can help you, you know, plan for these market turmoil events. So when there's market turmoil, correlations tend to go to one. And so, you know, a high quality company is just going to be lumped in there with, with the general sell-off. And, but if you can, if you have an understanding of what which companies you own are, are higher quality and which companies maybe are going to struggle during market turmoil. I think that helps with formulating your plan of, you know, where to allocate your money and maybe which names you want to reduce exposure to. And so I think a great example is, you know, a lot of times in early stage tech companies are dependent on, on their stock price for really funding, you know, stock price, stock based compensation and, and uh, you know, just funding growth. And so, if there's a huge drawdown in the stock price, they actually might be more impacted than some of these more mature tech companies. And so, again, just understanding where 
where the quality is and and the the quality of management as well can can help keep a level head during these during these volatile times. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I think this is a, really the perfect time to talk about this because what what we have seen. I mean, obviously the market in general has pulled back some, um, but tech and and a lot of you know innovative companies were especially uh, hit over the last six months. I mean, some names that I I love that are you know, 65% off, off of their highs, some of them. Um, and many of them, many more of them, you know, somewhere in that 25 to, to 45 range. So, so certainly it's caused me to have to, you know, revisit a lot of my clients and just continue to have those conversations around, Hey, remember when things were good and we had this discussion um, and, yeah. and I said, it's yeah. going to come, you know, it's here. So don't panic. You know, we expect this, we know it's going to happen. This certainly isn't going to be the last time, but but you do have to understand the expectations. And, and I think you're right. There are a lot of opportunities when, when something like this happens. And I've, I've honestly been thrilled to see certain names that I'm very excited about um, just come back way, way more than, than I expected in such a short period of time. Yeah. One thing I like to look at with market volatility, it's, it's kind of like a forest fire, you know, where you have, you know, you have this forest, it's overgrown, there's a lot of bushes, there's a lot of weeds, and they're stealing nutrients from from the strong trees. And then when you have this fire come through and it really just clears out all this waste. And the the trees, they can really, you know, they can if they can withstand the fire and then they have more nutrients and they grow much stronger. I think this correlates a lot to markets where you have frothy markets and you have a lot of these companies that come in and they're capital inefficient and they're really stealing some of this capital from, from these stronger companies. But then you have this market turmoil, which really clears out all this, all this froth. And then the strong companies are going to prevail because, you know, they have strong businesses. And then a benefit is is they're going to exit this market turmoil with less competition. And so it can, I think these, the market turmoil can also be an op, like a great opportunity to really add to your winners. And ideally, they'll come out of this even stronger. Yeah, I mean, there's some key metrics that we look at. I mean, when you, when you go through this volatility, I mean, to me, the most important question is, um, you know, what do I own? What is the conviction in these companies? You know, do I, do I see that they're going to be here five plus years from now? You know, and if the answer is yes, then this is the time to be adding to those positions. Um, I think it's really important to be taking a look at like macro trends and cycles. And I mean, just basic technical analysis can tell you when a market is starting to top so you can raise some cash. So you'll have cash to deploy in times like this. You know, so I think that's crucial. But when you go through this volatility, like Bradley was saying, one of the, th- one of the met- simple metrics that I like to look at is uh, once we bottom, what companies bottom before the broad market? <clears throat> you know, I want to look for that. I also want to look at how much are they up from their low. And on top of that, um, how far away are they from their 52-week high? You know, I mean, there's some companies that are like 70% off their 52-week high and they're up 50%. Like that's not as interesting to me as a stock that is 30% off of its its low and 25% from its 52-week high. So those right. kind of metrics kind of help us identify uh, who will likely be the next leaders in the next trend. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about just kind of how you all approach technology. I mean, there are so many kind of subsectors um, out there that a lot of people are are watching for the future and that people see as kind of the next big thing. And then there are other areas that are more mature, but you know, you'll see spinoffs, you'll see companies that that have some optionality that will be able to to play in a lot of different areas and probably find success that way. 
how do you uh, go about kind of separating the hype uh, of what might become a trend versus something you really see as as something that has some legs for the future and could make an impact and then get into you know finding the companies that might um, be in the best position to to profit and return uh, profits to shareholders yeah um, in one word I would say Beth <laughs> I mean Beth Beth is the best in the business when it comes to tech analysis I've been working with her since 2017, 2018. And I'm just uh, consistently amazed at, 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 at her analysis. I mean, she's, she tends to be a contrarian mm-hmm. and she tends to be right. She's early a lot of the times, but she sees these things, these, these trends that are playing out. And she really understands the trends that you want to be in versus ones that are just hype. Like for example, 3d printing, you know, I mean, like you know, the 3d printing trend could be over by now. We don't, we don't really know. I mean, there's not a, not a lot of revenue being generated there, but if you look at things like AI, if you look at things like e-commerce and mm-hmm. cloud data centers, for example, um, you know, um, understanding the micro trend is crucial. It's one thing that she's really good at understanding the ones that are active right now, but most importantly, is what product is setting up to be the de facto leader within that micro trend. And that kind of gets back into the whole valuation thing. Like if you look at a company like, for example, Datadog versus Dynatrace, just on valuations alone, Dynatrace looks like it would be the one that you want to be into, but Datadog's product is far superior. And so they are the ones that are the de facto winner within the data center cloud micro trend. And so having someone who kind of understands like the product side of tech uh, who can help you kind of get through the hurdle of like, yeah, but it's price to sales ratio is this, you know, um, that's crucial. I mean, I think it's one of probably the most important thing within tech. And that's a big part of our process. She will, uh, she kind of will set out like the uh, trends we want to be in, the stock she likes from a product perspective. And, um, you know, Bradley, um, I mean, he came on about a year ago and he comes from a uh, you know CPA CFA. He's a forensic. Uh, I'm kind of tooting his horn right now, but he's been a huge addition to our team. But he was a forensic accountant who came from the short side of of, of the market, and so he has the ability to identify some very very interesting flags uh, or green lights within the financials of companies that that we may have overlooked. And so those two together. Um, they basically give me on a silver platter the stocks that they like. And then it's just up to me to set up the risk management through technical analysis and macro cycles and things of that nature. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just add to that, like how, how really I identify trends is I think this kind of relates to what Bep does too, is, is we kind of take a, a bottoms up approach and we're looking at what companies are strongest. And so obviously we're here, we're focused on the hyper growth tech and that's our universe. But within that, you know, there's, there's hundreds of different companies that we can look at. And then it's hard to predict what trend is, is going to be the next trend. But what we try and do is we try to identify the strongest companies. And so the companies are, are really positioned for accelerating growth. So we'll look for, you know, metrics such as, you know, rising cash receipts from customers, you know, sales and marketing leverage, you know, sales outpacing, capital expenditures, uh, companies growing faster than their peers, really companies that are stronger than their competitors and stronger than they were in prior periods help highlight companies of strength. And then from there, then we'll dig into the financials and the conference calls and understand what are the underlying fundamental drivers of this strength. And that's what we'll, that's how we'll kind of figure out what are these, are these macro level trends. And so I think uh, some good examples of that would be like, you know, 
customer data, for example, you know, a company with, with strong customer data that provides them an edge, but you're not going to see that on the balance sheet. So you can't really screen for that. But when you, when you research the company and you see, okay, this, this company has strong customer data, they can go out and do transformational MMA, and then they can start cross-selling between these companies and inflect growth, both at the parent company and the, and the acquired company that can really lead to accelerating growth. Another great example is firms with strong developer networks, and that can lead mm-hmm. to like network effects, right? So right. that's another that's another aspect of a company you're not going to see in the financials, and you can't really screen for it. But like a good example is Apple and their iOS. So a lot of developers are going to learn that language, and there's huge switching costs to learn a new language. You know, developers have a finite amount of time, and they're not going to want to flip-flop between platforms. And so all the innovation is going to happen on that network. And then that's going to drive more customers there. And then that's going to drive more developers there because that's where all the growth is. And then it's a self-reinforcing trend. And so really what we try and do is find the strong companies and then identify these underlying trends that are driving them. And then really just taking just just a nuts and bolts approach to identifying is this is this trend sustainable and is it going to lead to sustainable growth going forward? And the last thing I'd say to that is, um, is we let the market also dictate <clears throat> what trend is in play. I think 5G is a good example of that. I mean, we were we were bullish on 5G last year, and it just really has been stuck in the mud. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a lot of the stocks that are set to benefit from that, we just abandoned them from right now, and we're focusing on trends that are are showing real. You know, we we don't want to be too creative and too cute, if you will. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, the market sure, is telling yeah. you what trends are, are in play right now. Well, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems out there is, uh, you know, people want to try to outsmart the market and, and you're not going to. So I, I think you can listen to the market and then you can, you know, it sounds like you guys kind of have a funnel system in place. You kind of start with the, the trends that that maybe Beth or, or all of you identify. And then seems like you have a lot of complementary skill sets as a team to where you can then take kind of the bigger picture and really start to to narrow it down into something where, you know, investable. So I, I imagine that's probably been one of the reasons you guys have had so much success over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Let's shift gears a little bit. We talked about time horizon and uh, I want to talk about uh, your all's time horizon, kind of when you are looking at investment opportunities, but also more broadly for someone who might just be a, a retail investor or, or, or for others listening, uh, because I think it's one thing that gets, you hear the word a lot, you hear the phrase a lot, um, but it, it doesn't often have a lot of, of meat behind it. It's kind of just thrown around and slung around in the in the financial advisor space in particular. And uh, it kind of gets lost because, I, you know, I've, I've got clients who I know are, you know, have 40 year time horizons and they still, you know, they still can't get past a three month, six month or, or a bad year. And yeah. Uh, it's it's one of my biggest frustrations in dealing dealing one on one with clients, but it's also part of my job to yeah. have those interactions and, and keep people on track. So w- when you guys do identify, let's say a, a company in a particular area that you like, I, I know you have some some exit points that will kind of probably immediately uh, cause you to shift course and and maybe abandon that position. But generally speaking, what type of time frame are you looking for your thesis to kind of play out? And then what kind of tips, I guess, can you give to somebody who they, they have a longer term time frame, but maybe they get distracted by the month to month, quarter to quarter, not just the volatility, but also just like businesses aren't uh, on, on a level 
uh, trajectory either. I mean, there are ebbs and flows to businesses, even if the stock might be doing doing well. So you just talk a little bit about time horizon. Yeah, I mean, our time horizon, I would say, is uh, ideally would be forever. <laughs> I mean, that would be ideal. Uh, that rarely happens, though. Um, I would say with our own portfolio as tech investors, if you don't have a five-year horizon minimum, then you can get caught in trouble. And I think one of the ways to keep that um, that that urge in check is to look back at um, just market history. I love studying market history. You learn a lot about investor psychology, which is so important, but also <clears throat> about what a, a real-time horizon is. And we did some research not too long ago. I mean, take a look at like tech going into the 2000 top, right? Literally the worst time to be a tech investor ever, right? I mean, years yeah, yeah. Of, a, of a secular bear market, brutal. seeing stocks go down 80%, some of them never reclaiming their highs. Qualcomm took 20 years to reclaim its high. <clears throat> you know, it lost 80% in, in a year and took 20 years to get back up there. So you hear stories like that and you're like, that can't happen to me. But no one talks about Apple. In 2000, it took, got back to all-time highs in four and a half years. You know, right. and let's take a look at 2007. I mean, I lived through that. I was, I was in the financial industry during that. That was horrifying, a horrifying bear market. Um, Apple got back to its all-time highs once again in about three years. Salesforce and Amazon, which at the time were high beta, no-name stocks, were back at their all-time mm-hmm. highs in two years. You know, and so if you have a five-year time horizon and you're holding the right stocks, you know, and so that's the other part, part of the question is what is the right stock? What separates Apple and Salesforce from, say, Qualcomm? And right. what is a separation is these are companies that are de facto leaders within very strong micro trends at the time. You know, so I think it's yeah. important to understand what you own, why you own it, and then be willing to add to it when no one else wants to, which is easier said than done. You know, the other part of the equation that I would suggest with, uh, with, with anyone who plays lip service to that idea is, you know, it is the most important aspect to investing in my opinion and is, and, and not really acknowledging it is why investors tend to um, underperform the market in a lot of ways. So advice that I have is read about behavioral investing. It's fascinating, you know, but human beings are, we're, we're more emotional than we are rational. And Absolutely. that part of a uh, part of the human experience uh, dominates every single time. And so if you're watching news and you're watching CNBC thinking that you're really being tuned in, you know, those news cycles are designed to make you do the wrong thing at the wrong time, both on the buy and the sell side. So right, turn off the news. Don't listen to any of it. Remember your time horizon. Remember what Apple did in the worst tech bear market in history. You know, remember that. Those are important things that, that we try to remember as well whenever we're, we're going through volatility. Absolutely. Bradley, you have anything to add? Yeah, I'll just say with with really with tech investing, it's 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 a long duration asset. So a lot of these companies, you know, they're deeply they're not they're not profitable right now, but the assumption is, you know, in 10, 15 years they're going to capture the majority of their market opportunity and then report robust cash flows and and strong earnings then. But the trick is is it's very hard to predict the future. And so ultimately quarterly earnings do matter for tech investing. But we have to we have to kind of accept that you know there's there's going to be periods where companies are going to miss and there's going to be periods where you know there's just going to be heightened volatility, and so this kind of goes back to our prior conversation of just identifying where these high quality companies are, and that will allow you to really to stay invested and you know to really compound your wealth. I think uh, right. you know 
Albert Einstein, he reportedly said that, you know, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world, right? So those who understand it, earn it. Those who don't, pay it. And so I think it's it's important to really just stay invested and to add to like what Knox was saying, add to your winners when others don't want to. And that can really help you succeed over time. And there's nothing better than to be in the market. And, you know, there's periods where, you know, obviously there's going to be volatility, but staying in the market is, is ultimately, I think, what is the best approach. Playing off of historic uh, famous physicists, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, also one of the smartest men that ever lived, and he lost uh, his fortune in the tulip craze. So intelligence is not enough. A lot of people think it is. They think they're smart here, and so they'll do well here, and it is not enough when it comes to investing. This is the only game in town I know of where you can be a workaholic and a, and a, and a, and a Mensa genius and still fail. Yeah, there there are, are countless examples of absolutely brilliant people who have um, just been on the the losing end of this business because of the the actual behavioral elements. And on the flip side, there are even more stories of of just the average Joe or even someone who really doesn't know what they're doing, but they're they're disciplined and they're consistent and they uh, have a long time horizon and they stick with it and they they end up uh, building you know huge huge mounds of wealth. Um, by doing that, and I, I think the uh, the fact that Morgan Housel pointed out in the Psychology of Money, um, his book about Warren Buffett is is a perfect example. And you know, Warren Buffett is widely considered the the best investor in the world. And I mean, there there are a lot of other uh, you know professional asset managers who who actually have better annualized returns than Warren Buffett. But but he's um, not to take anything away from him. He's he's had an incredibly long career of, of returns, but the best thing Warren Buffett has had uh, on his side for building his wealth is time. Yeah. And, and, you know, Morgan pointed out the fact that $81.5 <laughs> of his $84.5 billion net worth came after his 65th birthday. And, you know, know people that. just don't realize that he's, he's been in the game for 60 years. And, yeah. and if you, if you were in investing in the U S market predominantly for 60 years, it would be hard not to have a for you know to amass a fortune over that right. time. Right. So um, it is. It's just super important, and um, I think those were those were just really important points. I mean, the fact is, if you're going to be investing, particularly if you're going to try to invest in high growth companies, you have to keep your eye on the prize and uh, look past not just the volatility, but but um, you know you just you just have to be patient. You have to let these things play out because they don't happen smoothly oftentimes, and they don't happen overnight. Let's shift a little bit to selling. So, you know, the sell side is is often the hardest part of the decision to make. A lot of people can identify companies that they like and and do that part of the research, but really figuring out when to sell um, because you really can do a couple different things. You can sell way too early and miss out on on a on an opportunity. And and I'm willing to say that's been my biggest challenge in in the early part of of my investing days. I very often was right about the the trend and about the direction of things, but either took a profit too early or took a small loss because I got spooked out of my position. So I think sometimes selling is really the hardest investment decision to make. You touched on a little bit like with the 5G example of, hey, that's just, it's not going at the at the pace that maybe you thought it, it, it was going to. What are some other reasons, some triggers that might have you uh, kind of rethink a position and sell? Or, I mean, the big one is that if it's <clears throat> moving down and to the right, 
Um, you know, I mean, yeah. there, there's definitely some wiggle room you have with that, especially if it's a high conviction play and you're a little bit early. But, um, you know, we, we look to earnings for, for a reason to sell. If the story has changed on a fundamental level, then we have no problem cashing out or just taking losses. Or if, we, if we're just too early and the position is down uh, below a critical support level, we'll just bail. And I think by keeping your position sizes small at first, it's easier to do that. It's easier to cut. You know, if you're, if you're down 30% on 1% of your portfolio, that's nothing, you know. Right. But if you're, you have a position that's 10% and it's up 30% for the year, you know, that, those are the ones that we just will continue to feed. So we do let the market dictate um, when we sell and we have a discipline on how we add. We, we, let, we prefer to kind of layer into positions, like build positions over time once they start proving themselves to us. And we let the, um, we, we let the conference calls and the earnings reports also tell us whether we want to sell or not. The beauty of being an investor in the public market is, you know, we can get out whenever we want. We're not locked into these positions. It's not like we're management or we're a huge pension fund where it's hard for us to build these positions. And so, you know, if, if we're stressing about a position, if it's causing us to lose sleep, uh, I think there's no issue with reducing exposure, taking time to collect your thoughts and, and really writing down maybe the pros and cons of, of an investment. But ultimately, like I think a reason to sell a position is is when your thesis has changed. And, you know, there's there's a good good couple of reasons for that is, you know, just the company's getting riskier. Maybe the growth is unsustainable. Growth is being driven by one-time items and and uh, you know, rising prices and falling volumes isn't something we would like to see, or they're taking on less favorable contracts, or maybe the macro environment isn't favorable for them. You know, this is a company that's dependent on government spending and government spending is shifting elsewhere or there's inflationary pressure and there's an inability to pass that on to customers. And so, uh, and another good reason would be, you know, management turnover. Ultimately we're investing in management teams and, Mm -hmm. you know, we want, we want strong management. We want, you know, management to be truthful with us. And so if, you know, these things are changing, those would be definitely a catalyst to kind of re and, you know, take another look at the position and, is this something we want to hold, continue or continue to hold going forward? Or, you know, is there a better opportunity out there? And there's, you know, thousands of stocks. And so I don't think it's, I think it's okay to not get married to an idea, but you also want to maintain conviction on, on your strong, high quality names. One more point I would add is just paying close attention to forward looking metrics, because obviously investing is it's forward looking. And so we don't want to pay too much attention to the past, what the past past has already happened. And so, you know, some good forward looking metrics would be like, you know, rising in deferred revenue or or backlog. And so if we see mm-hmm. strength there, then that can kind of help guide our decision making of, hey, the forward looks bright. Maybe, maybe they missed, but we, we need to pay attention to how is this company going to act going forward. Good point. And the other thing I would say that could add to that, especially when it's when it comes to tech investing, is really understanding the product and really understanding the trend, like understanding that you are investing in this micro trend and uh, the stock is not the company as it is not the micro trend. They're correlated, but you know, stocks are driven by sentiment, which can knock the stocks out of whack in both directions. It just oscillates around the trend, but over time it tends to grow. Um, You know, from a personal example, you know, I, I was invested in Facebook at $25 and, um, I sold out of it with a with a 
decent profit around like $40. But the reason I sold out was volatility started hitting and I just thought that stock didn't make any sense. You know, but then I come to understand working with someone like Beth that no, Facebook is not a social media company. It is a media giant that basically through its implementation of a, of a network called Audience Network was setting itself up to become a complete cash machine. And so knowing that information at that time, instead of selling, I would have been buying hand over fist, you know, right. so it's just crucial. We've done that. There's a lot of stocks in our portfolios that have we've written multiple drawdowns on. And the, I mean, one of them specifically is up 800% since we first bought it, but we've had to ride three 60% drawdowns. Most people wouldn't do that. You know, I wouldn't do that unless I understood like what, what Beth really understands, which is like, no, this product right here is being misunderstood. This micro trend is huge and they're setting themselves up to continue to grow. Was that what, was that one Roku or was that? That was Roku. Else? That was Roku. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, by the way, props to Beth for my favorite uh, April Fool's Day joke of the of the season. <laughs> so, so Beth posted uh, that you guys liquidated, left, abandoned uh, your position in Nvidia, and right. your loyal <clears throat> followers lost their ever loving minds. And uh, yeah. I w- I was really enjoying the the comments on that particular post. <laughs> nope, it's still our biggest position. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I was. Uh, Man, that really uh, created some fireworks. Um, <laughs> but uh, Bradley, you talked about um, macro, so I think that's a good good opportunity for me to bring up something that everyone is uh, obviously um, up in arms and, and and really excited either direction about. But we had our first rate hike of the post COVID cycle here, and with with more expected. How do you guys factor things like that in? to kind of your your strategy and and you know what are you looking at right now to kind of dictate how it might impact the portfolio in the next i don't know year and a half or so i mean it's very important <clears throat> i mean just think of, take a look at tech for example um a lot of the companies that are down 20 30 40% uh they've reported since then and reported strong growth and raised guidance and the market just doesn't care and so you have to ask why that is. And it has everything to do with uh, the changing macro environment. Um, and we are shifting. I mean, we, I think it's important to know where you are in the business cycle, where you are in the equity cycle, where you are in the earnings cycle. It's really important to know that. But it's also, I think, even more important to understand and have a way to measure sentiment within the market because the market can get too bullish too soon or too bearish too soon. And I'm convinced that the market got way too bearish, way too soon. And it opened up some opportunities. Um, I think the market was preparing for a secular bear market to begin, uh, which very well may happen. No one really knows. But you started seeing some of these growth stocks priced for that. And to us, through our analysis, we felt the probability was quite low that that was going to happen. And this was opening up some really strong opportunities. You know, and in regards to like the Federal Reserve... You know, this is, we could talk for hours about this, but I think from the the Fed's action perspective, there's the academic side, then there's reality. And the academics can tell you, even the Fed's, Fed chairs themselves, I mean, there's a paper written a few years ago about showing how QE has little to no effect on actually altering uh, rates. <clears throat> now, everybody thinks they do because the Fed wants you to think that, but um, 
and you don't have to really do a lot of research to, fi- to figure out that the actions the Fed took, uh, the bond market did the opposite of what they wanted it to do consistently, right? right? But that doesn't matter because the market perceives that the Fed is all in control. So when the Fed reacts, the market reacts. And so I, I'd much rather be on the side of the market than being the academic who's right, but losing money. So I think you have to follow the Fed. And right now we are dealing with the most dovish Fed in human history. And in light of CPI numbers that we haven't seen in 40 years, some of us thought we probably never would see again with the deflationary forces going on in the world. And in light of real wages being down consistently for a year, almost every single month and consumer, consumer sentiment at recessionary levels, their response was eh, 25 basis points, you know, and that was a huge signal to the market that the most dovish Fed in history is more concerned about growth than they are about inflation, even though in between meetings, they make you think they're more concerned about inflation. It happens every push, time. <laughs> yeah. When push comes to sub, they're like, now nah, we're going to keep it going a little longer, guys. And I think that was a signal that... um the bear market, the secular bear market is likely not going to happen. And anyone who saw that, and we were way ahead of that, we're just buying a lot of these growth stocks hand over fist at that time. Yeah, I guess Bradley. I'll add that. I think it's it's a bit unfortunate that the Fed has so much sway over over investments. I would, I think all of us would agree that if, if the Fed was taken away, I think it would be a much more enjoyable experience. But <laughs> unfortunately, we do have to follow what, what the Fed is saying. But I my personal belief, I don't think it's I don't think it's really appropriate to try and predict where interest rates are going to be heading over the long run. What we try and do is we try and really position ourselves around trends that are going to continue regardless of the macro environment. So if rates rise, we believe that some of these trends we're invested in are still going to continue to grow and capture market share, right? Some of those are going to be EVs, big data, the work from home trends, you know, AI, cloud computing, those things, they're going to, maybe the pace of the growth is going to be impacted by changing in interest rates. But ultimately, we, we see that as a t- secular tailwinds. However, where the interest rates really comes, you know, the prominence is, is, is valuation. And so you have some of these, these tech growth names that are valued very richly. And so a rise in the discount rate is just, just the math means you're going to have to adjust your valuation. And so when we see that the interest rate environment may be heading on an uptrend, maybe we'll, you know, we'll talk internally about reducing exposure to some of our highly valued names. But, you know, I think the last 40 years, we've been in a consistent downtrend uh, in interest rates. And as, as Knox said, that the, the Fed is not responding to CPI, you know, a 25 basis point hike when you have, you know, seven to 8% inflation is just, is not going to cut it. And so, in between these these hiking cycles, they're saying, "Yeah, we're going to hike 300 basis points, or we're going to, you know, 75 basis points in the upcoming meeting," and then it just doesn't pan out. And so it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. But I think you know, just identify these these secular tailwinds and just staying invested there. That I think that's that's the best approach that that investors can really take. Yeah, I do think it's been kind of comical, like hearing the tough talk and then seeing the action, and they're they're just not really the same. And then I, I think, you know, there are some other interesting things just out in the, in the world, you know, you look at oil prices and then the, you know, administration basically committing to releasing some amount of reserves that is basically absolutely going to do nothing to, to right. the massive oil market. And, 
but it's, I think it's this mentality of like, we have to say we're doing something and this is something. So let's, let's say we're going to do it. And people pay a lot of attention to those things, but particularly that it's, it's meaningless. Literally we'll have zero impact on anything other than uh, some press releases and and media stories. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so much debt out there where I think, uh, you know, if you raise interest rates by 2%, that would really consume a lot of GDP. And so there is kind of a ceiling to how much they can they can raise interest rates without crashing the market. And I think they're aware of that. They just don't want to go out there and publicly state that. And so, you know, my personal belief is there's so much debt out there that, you know, maybe they're just trying to inflate it away. And they're they're saying they're going to address inflation, but, you know, they're going to keep rates low. And it's 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 hard to know exactly what they're going to do, but there's there's definitely consequences to raising too fast too quickly. And, you know, I, I think there is a ceiling to where these interest rates can go. Yeah. I, just to jump into that psychology of that is, um, first off, I don't think that the existing Fed chair or any Fed chair wants to be the one that's at the helm of the unwind that would follow uh, the last 13 years, right? Um, so I think there is an incentive not to be that one. Um, the other thing is that this isn't the first time we've really experienced something like this. Everyone likens what we're going through to the 1970s. This is way more like the 1940s. The 1940s coming out of World War II, I mean, the debt-to-GDP ratio was similar to where it is right now. And the uh, and we had no way of really getting out of that debt. And inflation ran for an annualized, an annualized rate of 4% for 10 years. And that alone took care of 60% of the debt with us doing nothing, right? And during that time, the equity market went on a major bull run the entire time. And so we have these ideas of like, oh, inflation is bad for stocks or inflation is bad for tech stocks. And and yeah, I think initially it is, but these correlations don't always hold. I mean, 1999 was a great example of that. You know, these correlations we think should hold, they don't always hold. And so it's very yeah. important to be aware of that. No, that's, that's really interesting, uh, especially about the, the 1940s. I think that's a really interesting kind of comparison there. And, and I did read Knox, your uh, recent paper on the Teflon market. And I thought that that really actually aligned in a lot of ways with kind of where, where my mind has been over the last couple months. So um, I would encourage anyone listening that, you know, go check out, out that article. I think it was called what the Teflon market, why the 12 year bull market will, will bounce back. So pretty insightful stuff, I think in there. Thank you. I really want to talk about just some broader and, you know, obviously this is an investment advice or anything like that. Just maybe each of you give one or two areas, um, kind of subsectors or, or trends that, that you think are in very investable right now or, or maybe underrated or, or kind of just whatever approach you want, something you, you find interesting right now. Yeah, sure. So a trend I, I very much am keen on is, is is the tech titans. I like to I like to call those the tech titans are Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Tesla. These these massive companies that are really investing, you know, in data centers and to be leaders in AI. And so what they're doing is they're they're making massive investments in in data centers and the in and the infrastructure to to be leaders in AI. And this is a tailwind for multiple industries, such as semiconductors, cloud and enterprise software, broadband providers, you know, skilled tech workers, big data, work from home trends. There's multiple industries that are going to benefit from this, this massive trend. And just to give an example is we have Facebook that recently guided that is going to double its CapEx in 2022 to over $32 billion. And that's, that's kind of an enormous number. And 
you know, I was just, I was looking up some, some data points to kind of put that into perspective. And I saw the, the NASA budget, you know, the organization that sends people to the moon, they're expected to spend $24 billion in 2022. So here, Facebook is spending 33% more to build out data centers, you know, to expand the metaverse, which on the surface sounds a little silly, but, you know, this is, this is kind of where the industry is heading. You know, these, these, these tech titans are investing massive amounts of money. If we look at the aggregate spending, I think between, you know, the FANG stocks plus, plus uh, Tesla and some of these other companies, I think it's over $150 billion they spent in 2021 primarily on, you know, cloud infrastructure. And so I think, you know, we're seeing this right now with the semiconductor shortage that this is a massive secular tailwind and it's, and it's picking up pace. So there's signs that it's going to be accelerating going forward. And, you know, cloud dinner wasn't really around until, you know, the late 2000s, early 2010s. And so we're still relatively early in this, in this trends I think it's the early innings and I think there's evidence that it's going to be accelerating going forward. And so that's where a lot of our plays are centered around. And it's an area that I think is just going to be a secular tailwinds, regardless of the macro environment. You know, you have supply chains and you have, you know, rising interest rates. But I think these companies are going to continue to invest and whoever becomes the leader in AI, they might become the leader of the world. And so I think that the prize is very big here. And so there's there's definitely going to be a lot of a lot of companies are going to benefit. Yeah. And I would say the one that I'm, I and we are also excited about is, is cryptocurrencies, <clears throat> which I know can be a hot topic to some people. But um, it was really Beth who turned me on. I've always been a fan of cryptocurrencies, but more for like the speculative asset, the speculative side of it. Um, right. There's not a lot of mo- news moving them. So it's like purely technicals. It's like right in my wheelhouse. I, they, they, they tend to act more so like I think they should than say stocks that have news incorporated into them. But Beth is one that turned me on to know these are like innovative tech. There's like really innovative tech behind these. And, and for me, there's uh, only two general categories in that world. There is your actual attempt to be a, a decentralized currency. Right. And in that world, that's where the preponderance of, or most of like the coins are trying to do. They're trying to be a better Bitcoin. And right now, and for, for me, like like the uh, the jury is in. And Bitcoin is the de facto leader. I don't really yeah. care if Litecoin is faster. The reality is that uh, anyone that owns Bitcoin, you could go anywhere in the world and likely do a transaction with them in Bitcoin. But including myself, but I'm not taking Litecoin for anything, you know. So yeah. Bitcoin has achieved that unspeakable difficult asset of becoming this kind of uh, subjective belief of being valuable of being a store of value you know and the other side of cryptocurrency is the really really innovative technologies behind some of these coins which is uh, you know we, we actually at our fund manage a cryptocurrency portfolio of about six coins and then we in and then inside of our main portfolio that we're, we're getting audited, you know, twice a year, we have four coins in there and it's all based off the tech. Yeah, I, I, I also really enjoy the crypto space. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's it's challenging, which I like because it's it's something new. And, you know, I think a lot of people, including myself, depending on which coin we're talking about or what area of the market, kind of don't know how to approach them in the, you're kind of taking this old investing framework and then introducing very rapidly, like a whole entire new asset class that people look at in totally different ways. And that's what's what's the most fun for me is it's you can talk to one person who 
they're they're kind of doing their analysis based on it performing this particular role or 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 whatever in a portfolio. Someone else sees it totally differently, and it's one of the first times I've seen such a disconnect um, and, and such ambiguity in in what the goal is. But do, how do you guys? You know, I'm sure different coins mean different things to you, but but like let's take a Bitcoin for example. Do you look at that more? similarly as you would like a, a tech company or are you looking at it more at this point as a store of value or kind of what role do you see bitcoin filling in your all's portfolios well i love it more than most most equities because we have to lean more into technical analysis i mean the one thing all stocks i don't care how long they've been trading even equities back before we were in, back in like the turn of the century before even tracking equities they all have price movements and price patterns and relationships to one another. And so uh, the same patterns I see in Bitcoin or, you know, just some no name, very tiny altcoins, the same patterns we'll see in NVIDIA and AMD and Microsoft. So in that world, we lean more into technicals because they don't have quarterly earnings reports. There's not a lot of news moving them. And even when there is news moving them, like for example, when, Ecuador announced that they're going to hand out wallets and make Bitcoin um, a uh, you know part of their national currency. Uh, that actually marked a top, as opposed to accelerating a movement higher. So I think sentiment um, has a lot more to do with movements within cryptocurrencies than news or anything else. Yeah, interesting, Bradley. You have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I mostly agree with Knox. You know, you can't do financial analysis with these cryptocurrencies. I mean, some of them, you know, on the Ethereum network, they might have cash flows and they actually might be a little bit more business oriented because they have teams behind them. But I think the beauty of, of Bitcoin and, and the beauty of cryptocurrencies in general is that they're decentralized and yeah. so you don't have to worry about management team coming in and, and diluting it or we know we know what the inflation schedule is. We know yeah. when the last coin is going to be mines. And so one thing I just love about cryptocurrencies is it's a brand new asset class. There's, mm-hmm. there's no, we don't know. We're all in the process of just figuring out as we go and you know what metrics matter. And ultimately, I think price is the most important part, uh, especially with Bitcoin. And we know it works and it continues to work, but you know, it's anyone's guess where it's going to be 10 years from now. I think if you had asked me if it's going to be $0 or if it's going to be worth more than it is today, I'd probably lean towards it's not going to be $0. It's definitely, yeah. I definitely see the trend heading up and to the right. Yeah, I would agree. And, and I think what the 19 millionth uh, Bitcoin was just recently mined. So only a couple mm. more to go. So that's an interesting kind of thing to keep an eye on, but the, the other cool thing about crypto and blockchain technology has just been the fact that it's it's starting to layer. Like, yeah. you know, you saw Bitcoin kind of lead the way as far as bringing the blockchain idea more to the mainstream, and now you're seeing this whole whole movement of decentralization of of tech and even outside of tech things that are utilizing you know the blockchain. And I I, I think it's just a really cool thing to kind of sit back and watch. And I don't know that anyone really has great idea of how this whole idea of web three or whatever is going to morph into, but I think it's exciting nonetheless to watch from the the sidelines. And then a lot of the companies that, that I personally invest in have exposure to that. Maybe not, maybe not directly, but um, they're going to benefit from, from such a move. So it's pretty cool to watch. Well, let's go ahead and switch gears into my final, you know, kind of closing questions, I guess. Um, We'll start with Bradley. 
And then Knox, you can handle the same question and then we'll uh, do the second question. But the first one is kind of thinking beyond money and dollars and cents and investing and all, all of those things. More broadly speaking, what does wealth um, mean to you? Okay, that's a, that's a good question. What is wealth? So I guess there's a, you know, there's probably a difference between being rich and being wealthy. And I would associate wealth with you know, it's, it's more earned. It's, it's related to success. And so, you know, you can be wealthy beyond, beyond just with, with money, right. You can have a wealth of knowledge. And so I think really being wealthy helps you control your life and, you know, you know, plan for the future and, and really provide for your family. But I also think it's something that needs to be earned. And so gaining experience and being invested, I think, uh, you know, it's, you don't have to be the richest person in the world, but you can still be wealthy so long as you end up with control over your life. Excellent. Knox? Yeah, I haven't really thought of that question before. I mean, wealth seems to imply something more than money. Uh, I think there are elements of wealth that money necessarily is needed to acquire. And then there's elements of wealth where money uh, really has no effect whatsoever on it. You know? Um, yeah. You know, so yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, but yeah, I would say that you know, uh, to be to be wealthy, money is uh, necessary but not sufficient. Agreed. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. And then the second question, uh, Knox, you can take this one first. If you could go back in time to maybe your younger days and uh, give yourself a piece of advice, maybe business related or uh, investing related or whatever, what would you uh, what would you tell yourself? I think about this, uh, I've thought about this before, where if I could just go back in time and know what I know about what the market's going to do, <laughs> right, I'd, go back right. to, uh, I'd go back to the late 90s and say, hey, buy all tech, and then uh, in two th- mid-2000, short all tech. <laughs> <laughs> then you'd be rich, uh, maybe not go. wealthy, but there you go. you'd be rich. <laughs> Bradley? I guess if I could go back in time, you know, just... Something I've always done is is learn. I try and learn as much as possible. But I guess maybe I would shift gears a little bit and learn more about programming. I think that's mm-hmm. definitely something that we should all learn. I think that's going to be a skill that's going to be more important going forward. And so if you get involved in that early, you really have this momentum behind you where you can just keep up with all. It's just it's so hard to keep up with all these changes going on when there is a new groundbreaking development in AI every few weeks. And so it's and it's hard to understand the concepts if you don't have a strong understanding of programming. And so it's something I'm I'm starting to learn now. But if I could have started when I was 10 years old, I think I would have had a huge leg up on really investing and just, you know, career prospects. And so, but um it's just another language. And I think that's that's where the world's heading. And I think it's definitely a, a critical skill that a lot of people should should pay attention to. I agree. And interestingly, that's that's on on my list of fairly long things I would go back and tell myself to do. But yeah, I think that's really good advice, particularly for someone younger right now, just thinking about what types of skills you could acquire that maybe will set you apart, not just in your career, but just in general. Because I, I agree, it's it's really just another language and it's maybe the most important language in the world to learn right now. So yeah. I think that's really, really good advice. And it's also, yeah, it impacts your, your thought process too. You know, you're just, it's that, de- that thought process of deduction. This causes this. And uh, I think that 
that helps so much with other aspects of your life, whether it be investing or planning for your future or really just making decisions in general. So I think it's, even if you don't use it in your daily life, it it's going to help impact just your, your decision-making. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, where can people find more about you guys or, or feel free if you've got any closing, closing thoughts, uh, throw those out there, but also let people know where they can learn more about you all and, and IO Fund for sure. Yeah, I mean, we run a, um, <clears throat> we run a research site at iofund.com. And you can Google us and find us. We um, do, uh, I don't know anyone that does the expansive research that we do within tech. Uh, we run a live portfolio. We do uh, real-time trade notifications so you can follow us in real time. And we have a forum where we'll actually interact with people and let them know what we're thinking while we're thinking it, provide charts, provide feedback on earnings. So um, if you're interested in growth investing or tech in general, uh, it's probably the best place you could go to. Yeah, and you can also find us on Twitter. I'm uh, at Bradley underscore I O F, and then uh, you know we have Beth can dig on Twitter, and then and then Knox you're on Twitter as well. Yeah, well, fantastic, both of you guys. I appreciate it, Bradley. I'm sorry the bourbon didn't, or the or the rye in this case didn't didn't make it. So <laughs> I hope it gets there in time for a little weekend celebration. I'll be looking out for it. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> But uh, either way, I've, I've certainly enjoyed uh, the conversation. Definitely appreciate your all's time. I know you stay busy and trying to keep up with what's happening in the, in the world of tech is is quite the job. But I'm a huge fan of what you all are doing and and definitely keep up with your research and and, and kind of what your thoughts are and think it's uh, very insightful. So I, I appreciate you all. Thanks, James. Appreciate yeah, absolutely. It. Thank Thanks you. for joining. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. These discussions are always interesting and educational for me, and I hope you're learning something as well. The best way you can help me is to share the episode with someone you think will find it interesting. And don't forget to follow Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon so you'll be notified when future episodes drop. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.